It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Adam Spinella is in the building and we're going to dive deep into the three NBA playoff games that occurred over the weekend. We're going to start with the Warriors defeating the Sacramento Kings in game seven earlier this afternoon. A very, I I don't know, was it anticlimactic in some ways for you? Was it exciting to watch just to see Steph go off for 50 in that way. How did you feel about that game spin? That was a blast to be able to watch a <laughs> super fun first half. And then I just love watching those performances that, you know, you're going to look back on and remember years and years from now. And it felt like that type of game for the golden state warriors and for Steph Curry of him just putting the team on his back and saying, I'm not leaving yet. It was very Wolf of yeah. Wall Street-esque. Like, this is just not how I'm going to go out. This is not how any of this is going to come to an end in the first round of the playoffs here. He was yeah. so good. Yeah, that was an amazing game. We'll talk about that one first. Then we're going to dive into Heat Knicks, which occurred earlier this afternoon, East Coast time, morning Pacific time over in the United States and overnight my time in Australia where the Miami Heat overcame a disaster first quarter to defeat the New York Knicks. We're going to dive into some tape, understand some of the adjustments that Eric Spolster made throughout the course of that game in order to slow down the Knicks on offense. Finally, we're going to jump into the game that happened yesterday, the Suns Nuggets game where it felt like there was a lot of discussion about the Phoenix Suns math problem on offense. And to me, the biggest math problem for them was not on offense. It was giving up 1.4 points per game or points per possession defensively. If you give up 1.4 points per possession defensively, you are not going to win 95% of your games. That is just the reality of the situation in the NBA. Even with offensive explosions being what they are, you have to get stops. The Suns could not get stops. We'll dive into why that didn't happen uh, throughout the course of that game with some tape as well. Spins, how you going though, buddy? I'm great. Uh, it's playoff basketball. You're never going to get a different answer from me, Sam. <laughs> like it's, and, and these are so much fun. I can't thank you enough for having me on to do a lot of these film dissections and breakdowns because to me, this is where so much of the fun really comes from. The, the best of seven series are thrilling performances and opportunities to see stars at their best. But if you are a hoops junkie and you love the tactical side of things, you don't get this through the regular season. You only get it when you get to see teams punch back and forth throughout the course of a series. And these these tape breakdowns, particularly for the game ones that we're going to do, 
are really fascinating looks at who's throwing what punches first. Yeah. And on the adjustment side as well, I think we often think about adjustments in terms of coaches and what kind of scheme they're bringing to the table. I think the most interesting thing about Warriors Kings wasn't the scheme adjustment. It was the player adjustment side. I think we often take the adjustments out of the players' hands when in reality, the players are the ones that are out there playing. They understand the yeah. field. They understand the guys that are guarding them. And to me, that was the most interesting part of what happened with Stephen Curry in this game. I thought the way that he specifically adjusted to some of the ways the Kings got under his skin a little bit with some of their perimeter defenders in game six was really, really intriguing. But we'll jump into that when we jump into the tape momentarily. The Golden State Warriors win game seven against the Sacramento Kings, 120 to 100. It was a blowout uh, in the third and fourth quarters after the Kings actually led by two at halftime. Stephen Curry goes for 58 and six assists. It was just a remarkable, remarkable occurrence to watch Stephen Curry in his prime still at 35 years old dominating in the way that he does uh I, I want to be clear about that 50 points eight rebounds by the way not 58 points in that game uh this was the Stephen Curry show again I thought it was the Kavon Looney show uh, the Kings I think have some real things to figure out we'll talk about that after we get done breaking down some of the tape just in terms of how Kavon Looney in my opinion frankly was the best big on the court in this series uh i think that the kings are going to have to figure some things out there but we have to start with stephen curry just an absolute masterclass from steph in this game i think in terms of getting separation in terms of on ball dominance and in terms of shot making like some of this shit was just absurd that steph did well his touch near the basket remains probably the most underrated part of his offensive arsenal everyone wants to discuss the shooting ability whether it's off the dribble and the deep range, the quick trigger, or on the move and how he just never stops running around screens throughout the course of the game. And and all those things are revolutionary and have unlocked the Warriors to become a championship core. But this is a guy who, on the right side or the left side of the basket, has every type of finish, teardrops, inside hand finishes, anything with English off the glass. He makes all of them, and he makes it look so effortless and easy while being one of the skinniest guys trying to finish amongst the trees. Like, to me... That was the most impressive part of his performance today is just how easy he made it look when he got near the basket. No, that's 100% right. And Steph, look, I mean, he made seven threes in this game. That does that seems like a lot for normal people. But when Steph goes for 50, you can sometimes see him go for 10 threes in a game, right? You can see him go for 11. I thought that the most impressive part of this from Steph was the driving game, the way that he played against some of the uh, over-aggression that the on-ball defenders uh, gave him, specifically in isolation and in handoff situations. Uh, Maybe we should just dive into the tape first and and just kind of do this while we're talking because I thought what Steph did was phenomenal in this game. But the first thing I actually want to showcase here is not Steph. It is the first play of the game. I thought it was just absolutely phenomenal, and it's something we're going to talk about a lot with the Kings here with Damana Sabonis. Uh, If I'm the Kings, I think this series gives me a lot of questions about if Damana Sabonis can anchor a positive defense in the playoffs. Uh, 
Sabonis Sabonis is going to be third team all NBA this year. The Kings is an organization very clearly have to be ecstatic with what they've gotten from Sabonis. And I would imagine that in many cases, Kings fans cannot be upset about the Tyrese Halliburton deal anymore. They made the playoffs. They won 48 games this year. They pushed the Golden State Warriors to seven games. I think there's so, so much to be absolutely thrilled about. And yet there is still so much to have real worry about. So we're going to watch here. This set is just absolutely fantastic. We're going to see Kevon Looney come up, set a very high ball screen. I think that more than anything to me, the reason I wanted to showcase this first clip uh, from the first possession of the game, a big adjustment that I thought the Warriors made in this game was more ball screens higher up the court uh, in order to get Steph in even more space to elongate that mid-range area for their bigs in short roll scenarios. I thought that setting ball screens higher up the court was a really, really solid adjustment from Steve Kerr in this game. So here, this is just a set, by the way. We're just looking here. Steph's going to throw the ball to the wing to Dre. Dre's going to catch it, and he's going to throw that beautiful left-hand pass right in the pocket there to Kevon Looney, who is typically in that short roll area. And this is something that was concerning for the Kings all game from the first possession onward. Their defense on the weak side was not good enough. And this is something that hurt them throughout the series. But particularly today, I'm going to show you multiple clips about how that backside tagging defender, that low man, was not available enough, in my opinion. And here, Keegan Murray is just late and he doesn't get there in time. And that's an easy dunk for Kevon Looney. Yeah, it's a great play designed by Steve Kerr. You know they're going to send two at Stephen Curry, and instead of trying to have Curry pass over the top of a trap, they throw it to Draymond and make him the entry pass point to get the ball into the lane. So absolutely poor help defense to start. I thought Steve Kerr was deep in his bag all day, as Mike Jones would say. Yeah. Mark Jones, <laughs> deep in his bag like the fries at the bottom, right? Like all of the plays that he drew up. Yeah. worked to perfection and were really smart ways of leveraging what the Kings wanted to do or didn't do well enough against them. Yeah. And you know, like we talked a lot about how they sent two at the ball oftentimes, but the other thing that was just strange for me for the Kings, and they did this throughout the series, you know, there were multiple clips that we have seen. We're going to watch this one here. This is just going to be a, uh, I believe an entry and then a misdirection dribble handoff essentially where Steph throws this like little mini no look pass here to Kavon Looney and then he's going to stop and then he's going to misdirection just sprint backward to get a handoff from Looney and you're going to see here Sabonis is just like almost not paying attention like he has his head turned like this whole way head is still turned even when Steph starts the misdirection cut backward in order to get into the handoff. And Sabonis is just going to be late. And at that point, you're dead uh, against yeah. Stephen Curry. You have to have your head on a swivel. And Sabonis was just late here. And that is and it, not something you can do. Well, and it's tough with those chase actions when you're guarding a non-shooter like Looney or Draymond because your instinct, if you're Sabonis, is to back up. It's a non-shooter. I don't need to crowd him out there. The rim, the rim is completely unprotected. I probably do myself some good by backing up and giving space. You can't do that with Steph. You have to stay attached at least enough where if the Aaron Fox gets hung up like he does, you can get a contest in there. It's 100% right. And, and again, like this is going to be a – Big Demonis Sabonis show defensively, unfortunately. Uh, again, Demonis Sabonis, great season. 
deservedly going to be third team all NBA. He got hit pretty hard in this game. So here we're going to see higher ball screen again. And then Demonis Sabonis just right over the top of or uh, Stephen Curry right over the top of Sabonis here with this beautiful layup. And again, this is a shot that very few people can make, but also I think it goes to show the lack of length Sabonis brings around the basket. Uh, if this is a longer defender, I don't know that Steph goes for this shot. And because it's not, he feels like he can get the proper loft. He thinks he can get the proper touch to be able to finish over the top of Sabonis here. Uh, again, I think that this one is going to be another very, very high ball screen where what you're going to notice here off of the very high ball screen. Sorry, I got a call and had to kill it. Um, you're going to notice rejects this second screen here and just look at Sabonis get sealed off. Look at Draymond Green, just seal off Sabonis there, makes it easy. Another thing here that you're going to notice, this is where Terrence Davis enters the fold. We talked a lot about how good Terrence Davis was in game six, chasing Stephen Curry, bringing a physical presence, bringing that more powerful frame against him. That was uh, that was non-existent yeah. today. Uh, what Steph did to adjust to what Terrence Davis was bringing him defensively is specifically what I was talking about in the open. Yeah. Terrence Davis is a very over-aggressive player. Uh, he does not have the patience or the discipline, typically, to play in these tough matchups. He is someone that you can throw on a guy for 20 minutes, and he might frustrate him and might annoy him, but the good players are always going to figure him out. Yep. It's yep. always over-aggression. It's always that just like right up tight on you. And as soon as Steph recognizes it here, again, you're going to see this initial high ball screen. And again, Davis just goes all the way to the right behind the back dribble. And there it is again, the finish with the sealed off Sabonis from Draymond. Yeah, so f from a roster construction standpoint, I feel like the Kings need those hyper aggressive guards because they don't have the same backline rim protection. Their best chance against Steph or any type of good perimeter players is to really pressure them. See if you can prevent them from going around you force turnovers, whatever that may be. But the Warriors, both from a scheme standpoint and from Steph, like you said, figuring this out, were able to expose the weakest point of that Kings defense in Sabonis. And that's not Demonis Sabonis slander, right? Let's steal a, a phrase from the guys Duncan over there. Like that's that's not Sabonis slander. It's just the the weakest spot on the lineup for the Kings at Golden State had a marginal advantage at. I thought they went at him yeah. through ball screens a lot more in the first half. And then, as we'll probably see a little bit later, they just out-muscled him in the second half. Yeah, and again, notice here this next clip. Super high ball screen again. Getting Sabonis in space. And he's just way too open here, Sabonis. Like, you can see this. Like, this, this is just shooting fish in a barrel for Stephen Curry and Draymond Green, who have just been around the block for so, so, so long. This is way too easy for them to hit this pocket pass. And again, what you will see, backside tagger, Terrence Davis, way too late rotating over. He is on Gary Payton right now. All due respect to Gary Payton, Gary Payton can't shoot. It's inexcusable to be this late if you're Terrence Davis on the backside when your responsibility is Gary Payton in the corner. Yeah, and, and again, at this point, that, that clip, I think one of the last few of the first quarter, like 
if you're the Sacramento Kings help side defenders, you have to know that they're trying to target Sabonis. So your help has to be a little bit earlier to buy him time when he gets strung out on the perimeter. It was the lack of adjustment from some of those guys from a help defensive standpoint that allowed the rim to stay open again and again and again. Yep, that's exactly right. Here we go again, Terrence Davis. The goal here, I think, from Davis, he thinks he has help to the right side of the court, and he thinks he has rim protection. He's trying to keep Stephen Curry out of the middle here. He thinks that Clay is about to come up and set a screen uh, to try and get Steph back to the middle. Steph just goes before the screen gets there, and this is way too easy for Steph to get into the middle of the paint. And again, does not really care that Sabonis is there. Uh, he's just going to go and finish up over the top of Sabonis every single time. Uh, here we go again. One thing that you and I talked about on the show on Saturday was the way that Terrence Davis was able to get around those curls and try and get back into the play. What I think the Warriors and what Steph did that adjusted here a little bit more cleanly was I thought that he started his curls a little bit lower on the court this time. So here he basically gets to the top of the key with that bottom foot. Uh, as you can see, uh, it's a little bit hard to rewind uh, perfectly here, but he's getting almost down to that bottom of the key there with that low foot. And then he's going. And here we go. Dribble handoff from Dre. Again, Terrence L- or, uh, Trey Lyles just goes under this dribble handoff. And if you go under a dribble handoff against Steph, it is curtains. It is very difficult. Getting into the third quarter now. What is this one? This one is, I believe, Steph coming off of some sort of off-ball action here, uh, where, again, I believe Terrence Davis is going to like try and loop around him and way overplay and get himself his weight distribution stuck on that right foot again. And Steph recognizes it immediately and just goes around him. Help defense from uh, the elbow there from Harrison Barnes is just like that split second too late. And it's an easy finish again, right at the basket. Here we go. Steph, this is just off of an offensive rebound chaos. Third quarter, the Golden State Warriors ended up with 13 offensive rebounds in the first 10 minutes in the third quarter. That is really, I think, what swung the game uh, in a substantial way toward the Golden State side. All of that action off of the glass was really, really hard, I thought, for Sacramento to get stops. Uh, They got some okay stops. It was just that they had to get more and more and more of them uh, because they couldn't grab the ball on the offensive glass. And again, Kevon Looney, I think, deserves an immense amount of credit. This was uh, maybe the... Uh, career-defining series for Kevon Looney in many ways. When the Warriors' backs were up against the wall, Kevon Looney came, and Kevon Looney absolutely provided an immense amount of production and rebounding in defensive intensity. Uh, here, this is just a scramble where Keegan Murray gets stuck out on Steph, and Steph is going to get lower leverage than Keegan here. He gets lower, gets by him, Easy finish off the glass. Spins. We, we say we say that, but that's not an easy. And all of these are not like he's 
he is a touch god, yeah, Steph really. Curry, when he gets in here. Like, this is a difficult-ass finish to float that high up the glass with one hand. Like, he is he is so, so, so good at doing that. And, and look, the story of this game was in the first half for Golden State, it was the Steph show. But nobody yeah. else seemed to show up. Wiggins couldn't hit a shot. Clay Thompson could not hit a shot at all. Jordan Poole was making bad decision after bad decision. And Steph was keeping them in it with, I, th- I think he had close to 30 uh, in that first half. And it was Looney, the other guy who stepped up, that really was like, yep. okay, it's not just Steph. Now we have somebody else who's out here battling and making plays. And then the floodgates opened. Yeah, and you bring up the idea of how this is way more difficult. I mean, the crazy difficult thing here is just the one-handed gather, right? Your one hand gathering going up into that insane floater finger roll off the glass. The thing that helps here is the Trey Lyles goes for a charge. And there's Steph knows before that that he is not going to get all the way there. But it, it it's just insane. Steph is an unbelievable player. Again, super high ball screen. Super high ball screen here. They get the switch because of how good the screen is from Draymond and how he stays attached there. And then it's just Stephen Curry against Trey Lyles. Trey thinks he's going up for the pull up. That's an easy layup for Stephen Curry there. Uh, Steph here. This is Kevin Herter on Steph. They tried numerous options against Steph. Here you go. Another great handoff from Draymond. Another great screen here. And he just does not care that Debonis Bonus is the one rolling over from the weak side, rotating to try and protect the rim. There's just nothing that Sabonis can really do uh, to slow down Steph there. Again, another action where ball goes over to Clay. Steph acts like he's going to go and be the release valve and then just cuts immediately. Just absolutely cuts. And again, this is a great adjustment from Steph from game six to game seven. He knows that Terrence Davis is going to overplay him. He knows it. Look, stops on a dime on the K in the Kings. Davis, again, way overplaying, way over aggressive. He's able to get that little bit of space immediately and able to go get the handoff. And again, stops. Davis is way over pursued again. Opens up the lane. Easy finish for Steph at the basket again. Just yep. blind ridiculous. pig action. Love it. Just absolutely ridiculous stuff here. And this one is just sicko mode at this point for Steph. Like, there's nothing else to say about that. That's just gross. I don't even think the Kings defended that poorly. That's just absolutely filthy. Uh, this one here, again, absolutely filthy off of like a broken play, essentially. Steph goes, shoots like a 15 foot floater runner that goes in, as Spin said, touch God, basically. This is a really fun set where they have, I think, 1.6 left on the shot or on the uh, yeah shot clock here. And what you're going to notice here, Steph gets his momentum going forward before he actually inbounds the ball, giving himself just that little bit of extra speed and downhill uh, space to try and get separation from De'Aaron Fox. Uh, Fox... Just totally looking the other way here. I have no idea. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I I can't really explain that from De'Aaron Fox there. Uh, and that's just wide open for Steph. Of course, he's going to make that one. And then here, this is just the <laughs> curtains. This is this is beautiful. Just gets right by Demonis Sabonis. That's his 50 ball. Uh, that is how Steph beat 
the Sacramento Kings. Uh, the Kings, they, they worked their ass off in the series. And they did a really great job, I thought, of fighting and scratching and clawing. I thought they played better defensively in this series than what I expected them to play. But when it mattered in Game 7, Stephen Curry stepped up. He completely dominated the Kings. Uh, Kevon Looney stepped up, completely dominated Devon Sabonis on the glass. And, and that's why the Warriors are moving forward. So before we get to the Warriors-Lakers series, which I think is an interesting discussion point, let's go to the Kings. The Kings should be ecstatic about this season. They should be absolutely thrilled about the way that this is going. They won 48 games. De'Aaron Fox might make all NBA. Demonis Sabonis is definitely going to make all NBA. Everything that we've seen from them is in a very positive trajectory. The question now is how do they get better in playoff formats? Because on one hand, you can look at this and say, we just pushed the NBA champion last season, a dynasty Golden State Warriors team to seven games. We should be pumped about this. I also think that a lot of the flaws that we saw in those clips showed up throughout the series and show up in their roster construction. On top of that, Harrison Barnes, not exactly getting younger. I'm sure that they're expecting Keegan Murray to step into that role long-term and be an even better, uh, you know, bigger wing that can take tougher defensive assignments and be a bit of a, you know, shot creator off of advantages. Exactly what we saw Keegan Murray do in limited opportunities this year, stepping into a bigger role moving forward. Uh, Kevin Herter, I thought, was a mess throughout this series in general. That feels concerning long-term because he was so important for them throughout the course of the season. Malik Monk, I thought, was hit or miss in this series, but Malik is a very valuable player, I think, moving forward with the Sacramento Kings. I thought he outplayed Jordan Poole in this series, uh, and he makes a fourth of what Jordan Poole does starting next season. So huge, enormous, important player to keep around for the Kings. Where do they need to add, in your opinion, around De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis in order to get the most out of this roster? Because I think they did it this offseason with shooting and with offensive firepower. If you're going to have De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis as your you know, franchise cornerstones, the one in the five, you have to surround them with shooting. And I think they did a great job of that. What else do they need now in order to make this work? I think they need another defensive linchpin piece, Sam. And this is a specialty front court wing defender who can do different things and, and maybe take those bigger matchups uh, from Sabonis and, and guard the pick and roll in different ways while also being a good perimeter uh, perimeter player who can both space the floor on offense without sacrificing the biggest part of their identity, which is is the way that they play on offense, as well as being able to guard perimeter players. So it's it's really this modern-day version of what a lot of teams have at the four, whether that's a Jared Vanderbilt, a Jaden McDaniels, like you would hope to get somebody who can play that type of Swiss Army knife defensive role without sacrificing a ton of the floor spacing side. And that's actually a really difficult thing to do because I think we've seen many of these defensive specialists role playing like bigger wings get played off the court in a postseason series on the offensive end. So the Kings need to find the delicate balance between 
bringing somebody in who can play that role because they don't have anyone who's great at it and not letting it take away from what makes them so special, which is being so well-spaced and balanced on the offensive side. But they definitely need just a secondary rim protector who can fly around so that Sabonis can probably play more aggressively up near the level of the ball. Yep. Look, so I think that, look, Harrison Barnes is a free agent this offseason. I don't know what that will necessarily look like. Terrence Davis is a free agent. Uh, We'll see what that looks like, right? I'm still trying to figure out, I guess, if I'm the Kings. Am I close enough at this point, in my opinion, to where I try and make something resembling an all-in move? Am I willing to try and do something crazy to try and get OG Ananobi? Because that's kind of the guy that could be available this offseason that makes the most amount of sense for the Kings, right? And there's going to be a bidding war for OG Ananobi because if you remember on Saturday, we brought up OG Ananobi for Memphis, right? Right. Uh, As a potential option. I think that they need somebody like that uh, moving forward in order to fill out this roster and make it make a little bit more sense long-term. Now, those guys are very hard to find. Uh, In this draft coming up, those guys are also very hard to find, especially where the Sacramento Kings will be selecting at number 24 overall. Uh, Do you take a risk on someone like a Bobby Clintman, a Bilal Koulibaly, a uh, Chris Murray, maybe could be around number 24. I think that could make a reasonable amount of sense. Uh, Rayon Rupert, really high level defender. Does Noah Clowney get to 24? If you want to go with more of a bigger body there, that can be almost like a true, center that can you know maybe play next to Sabonis if you think that he is uh you know more if you think Clowney's more of a four long term I'm intrigued like I I think they have a lot of options on the table I I just am trying I think that they've basically backed themselves into where they have this core now which is you know De'Aaron Fox is 25 I think that Sabonis is like 25 years old right uh or no uh Sabonis is 26, if I remember correctly. But, uh, you know, Kevin Herter is 24 years old. And they're, they've are they done well in terms of getting all of these guys that I think are in the same age bracket that will be able to grow and mature together. And I would continue to look within that age bracket for options that make sense for them long term. Uh, there are a few draft options that I think could make sense that I just laid out. There are a few free agency options I'm sure that would make sense for them. There are some trade options that would make sense for them, but it's all about defense. It's all about finding defense and shooting for them. And though that's a hard thing to find in a single player package and that package tends to be very expensive uh, in terms of the trade market. And I think with the, the draft pick side of things, yes, a lot of players who I would love to fit in Sacramento who solve or theoretically solve many of these problems I think it's very unfair to expect anybody that you would take with the 24th pick to come in and make any positive contribution in the playoff series their rookie year. So if they're looking for an aggressive, hey, we want to stay as a top four team in the Western Conference next year, they've got to do it via trade or free agency and just add more depth and continue to bolster their options off the the bench with the 24th pick. Yeah, and they're also in a pretty interesting spot where like, the guy in free agency that I think could actually make some sense for them is Kyle Kuzma. If you buy him being a shooter, uh, 
I wonder if you could find a way to negotiate like a sign and trade for the Wizards. But it feels like the Wizards are about to like, cons- you know, maybe before they remove Tommy Shepard, it seemed like they were on the track of overpaying to keep Kyle Kuzma. Uh, if they don't do that, the way that they handled Kuzma at the deadline makes even less sense. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot to think about with all of that. But yeah, I think that there are a lot of potential options and I'm really excited yeah. to see where the Kings go. Uh, it's just that this is, this is the question, I guess, for you, Adam, do they go all in now based off of what we've seen? I don't know if I'd go all in because I think going all in means tearing down a piece of what you've already built in order to potentially get something that allows it to grow bigger. And I'm willing to bank on enough continued growth from the younger guys here, another year of gel and cohesion with Fox and Sabonis together, and the right defensive role-playing infrastructure that I would give that a shot before you try to, to blow it up and really change things. Now, does the right price tag for an OG and an OB or maybe even a Mikhail Bridges make that really tenable for the Kings? I think so. But it's not something that I would be going out there searching really hard and saying, hey, now's the time that we have to maybe overpay to make this happen or yep. panic that we might not be able to. Like if they don't run into a Steph Curry 50 ball today, this is a team that's moving forward in the playoffs and has a chance to do some real, real, real damage against the Los Angeles Lakers. So uh, I'm nowhere near Panic City. I'm going to be honest. I think the Lakers would have kind of obliterated them just with their length and like size and their ability to swallow them up on defense. But that's neither here nor there because we're not going to see it. Um, The interesting thing now is also Demonis Sabonis. He will be extension eligible this summer. And I believe the number that they can get him to in the first year is like 28 or so now with the new extension rules, something in that ballpark which would then get you right around. I'm just doing fuzzy math off the top of my head. It's probably like a four year 120 or something like that in terms of an extension three year, uh, three year, like 90 something like three year 88. I don't, I'm just like throwing numbers off the top of my head kind of at this point Um, based off of like the 140 number uh, 140% of what his final year is. Does Demata Sabona sign that? is a really interesting question. I I don't know the answer to that. And it's a huge, huge, huge question for the Kings in terms of their long-term planning. Because if you have Sabonis, then you know you have to go out and get a two-way stopper who can bring some rim protection and be bigger. And you have to go out and you have to get, frankly, like a better option than Trey Lyles who can come in off the bench and be like a switchable defender in those moments where you need to sit Demonis Sabonis. But Demonis Sabonis is an enormous part of what made you great this year. And I think you probably have to retain him. You have to at least give him the option to where you max, you you give him the max extension offer you can, and you see where it goes. Hopefully for them, he's willing to resign that extension. I would understand if he wants to go to free agency because he thinks he can get more. I I, I don't know if anyone's going to pay Demonis Sabonis you know, $35 million a year, especially after this playoff series. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, from where I sit, I'm a big fit guy, right? Go where you're wanted, go where you're going to be best utilized. And even if it feels like a bargain for 
the Kings to get Sabonis on that price tag, no other place is going to get the most out of him in the way that the Sacramento team will. Not just because they've built around him, but because of the coaching staff, the players and pieces that are supporting cast there. Everything is fit to get us the best version of Damana Sabonis. And if the front office is committed to finding another defensive piece that gives them optionality to be more viable on the defensive end, like, dude, I don't care what the price tag is somewhere else. Like, stay, sign this next one, and then the contract you get three years from now, four years from now, is going to take care of the big payday. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Warriors-Lakers real quick. What what do you see as the important things to watch for in this series? Ooh. Um, I want to see if Kavon Looney can wear down Anthony Davis. I think that's a big Just, part. Just straight up, like Anthony Davis has been the best player in the playoffs for the Lakers. He has been so damn good and valuable on both ends of the floor. He is also, and and this is not necessarily a knock on him, like he is a guy who tends to be more finesse than physical in the in the lane. And Kevon Looney is going to make you change that. So I want to see how that matchup plays out. I think Darvin Ham has done a nice job with so many of his defensive assignments and and tactics throughout the playoffs, the way that he changes around having Anthony Davis, Jared Vanderbilt, and just an insane amount of length. I want to see how he tries to solve the Golden State Warriors puzzle. Probably a nice roadmap laid out by the Sacramento Kings, but can't replicate too much because their rosters are just so different. I want to see who Jared Vanderbilt ends up guarding with his primary assignment, because that's going to be real for me. And I want to see... Andrew Wiggins and trying to guard LeBron James in crunch time and one-on-one situations. I think that's going to be a really fun, underrated part of the series because Wiggins is tailor-made to give him problems in isolation. Well, and it's really interesting because they have multiple bodies to throw at LeBron too, because you can throw Draymond Green at LeBron as well. A couple of important things that I'm going to be looking for throughout the course of this series. Uh, You look at the pace battle, right? So, Obviously, Golden State prefers to play relatively fast, right? That, that, that's their goal. They want to try and get up and down the court. Against Memphis, I thought that the Lakers' offense looked best when they could play fast, when that pace battle was valuable because it didn't make LeBron be that guy where he has to try and create in the half court. He was able to get out and transition. He was able to get downhill LeBron is still great. LeBron is unbelievable. It's just that I don't know if he has quite the first step that he used to have anymore. And because of that, getting out in transition, being able to sprint the court, being able to, you know, get downhill after that little bit of head of steam, I think is much easier for him at this point. And I'm really interested to see what the tempo battle looks like in this series. I think it's going to be really important. Does Golden State try and play a little bit smaller and out execute? I think that might be a bad idea because the Lakers are really big and really long and really aggressive, especially in a series where the Lakers are going to be able to play Jared Vanderbilt in this series. Like no yep. questions asked yep. because they're always going to have Draymond Green, Gary Payton, Kevon Looney, guys like that out there where it's not going to be a problem for them. The other thing in this series is Throughout the course of the playoffs, we've talked about proactive uh, defensive situations where 
if you have a guy on offense that is essentially a non-entity or a non-shooter on offense, the opposing team has essentially two options. They can put a proactive defender on that guy who can be in immense value in help defense, rotating all across the court, being a menace for everybody else. Or you can have something of a reactive defender, right? Or uh, a, a less valuable defender that you're trying to hide or trying to get a blow it so that he can have more offensive value. Think about the way that the Warriors use Draymond Green basically every series versus the way the Knicks use Jalen Brunson in the series against the Cleveland Cavaliers, where anytime Jetty Osman, Isaac Okoro, Lamar Stevens, et cetera, came out onto the court, they would hide Jalen Brunson on that player to get him a little bit of extra rest and recovery and everything. In this series, it's going to be proactive help defense all over the place because both of these teams have guys that you don't really have to guard if you don't want to, which means who gets the best of that proactive help scenario? How do they utilize that proactive help scenario? Is it Jared Vanderbilt guarding Stephen Curry and they use Anthony Davis as like an elite level rim protector? Or do they have Anthony Davis on Kevon Looney and then use Jared Vanderbilt all over the place in help defense uh, to be able to cover ground? Same with the Warriors. Do you use Draymond Green in that scenario in order to just be a proactive help defender helping all over the place? Do you use Kevon Looney as a rim protector? How the teams utilize the help defensive uh, assignments in this series is going to be really, really important. And then on top of it, I think this is going to be a more of a defensive slog than what people would think, in my opinion. Uh, I think that because both of these teams have non-entities and because both of these teams have these really high-level help defenders, it's going to be really hard to go into the paint, which means shooting is going to be the thing that takes over. On top of that, there's just the obvious question of how they guard Steph, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, is it Austin Reeves? Is it Jared Vanderbilt? Is I think it's probably got to be Austin Reeves, if I'm being honest, yeah. because Jared tends not to get over screens super duper well. Uh, you can't have D'Angelo Russell no. guard him. No. Can't have Malik Beasley guard him. If the war, if the Lakers can get anything out of any of their defenders against Stephen Curry, I think the Lakers have a good chance to win this series. If Steph cooks, I think the Warriors win this series. It's going to be, to me, like that's really what it comes down to is how the Lakers are able to guard Stephen Curry and if they can find any level of success doing so. Yeah, I, I tend to to want to gravitate towards the Warriors first just because I, I think that they're, the synergy of their system allows them to defeat different types of defensive coverages and teams who try to exploit, like you said, guys that they don't have to guard, that the the motion, the constant movement, and everyone understanding their role, the Warriors are a, a, a well-oiled machine in that regard. Like I'm, I'm thinking about the depth for the Lakers or, or some of the non-star players, and I don't know if it's a great series for D'Angelo Russell. I don't know if this is a great series for Rui Hachimura. Like I thought he would have had a lot better of a time going against the Sacramento Kings and trying to mismatch some of their, their guys when they go smaller than he's going to against Golden State. So um, 
my, my gut says Golden State in this one, but it's certainly going to be really fun, particularly if Darvin Ham can dial up the right tactical adjustments from the from the jump here. Yeah, I think that's dead on. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break and let's dive into the Heat Knicks game from earlier today. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. All right, Spence, let's do it. Let's jump in. Let's talk about the Heat Knicks game. The Heat win this game 108 to 90 or 108 to 101. And it was a fascinating, fascinating game for a number of reasons. The Knicks come out in this game. They're on fire offensively. They dropped 32 in the first quarter. And then from there on, it just became a super slog of a basketball game. And obviously this is a game without Julius Randle for the New York Knicks. Uh, This is a game where it seems like Jimmy Butler was not 100% by the end of it. Uh, Bam and Abayo seemed to be, you know, 
have a lot of wear and tear maybe from that last Buck series after dealing with Brooke Lopez and Giannis Antetokounmpo for five games. What was your immediate reaction to what you saw from game one in this Heat Knicks series? It was a great game. Uh, Jimmy Butler continues to do superhuman things and carry the Miami Heat in a ton of different ways. I thought in the first round series against Milton, Milwaukee, excuse me, it was much more about his offense. I thought tonight it was much more about him kind of answering the call a little bit on the defensive end of the floor. My heart is absolutely singing right now because one of my favorite players of all time in Kevin Love had a fantastic game and I think helped ignite a spark for the Miami Heat that allowed them to much more comfortably get back into this game. They were scratching and crawling their way back in before Kevin Love had his third quarter explosion. But I think that that was just a a really tough blow for the New York Knicks when they didn't have Julius Randle out there. Spins demanded that I pull Kevin Love clips in this game. So we're going to watch some of those clips at some point. But we're also going to watch some clips on the defensive adjustments from the Miami Heat. Uh, before we get into those, it's just worth noting, Jimmy Butler goes for 25 points, 11 rebounds, four assists, two steals, uh, eight of 16 from the field, nine of 11 from the line. Uh, Jalen Brunson goes for 25, but it took him 23 field goal attempts to get there. RJ Barrett goes for 26, nine and seven. I thought RJ was the next best player today. Certainly uh, Obi Toppin goes for 18. Uh, he Ooh. took 11 threes in this game, which was, I think a bit of a surprise. And yet, also is somewhat indicative of what I think the most important things are going to be moving forward uh, within this series for the Knicks. So I I don't know. Do you just want to kind of dive into the tape here and just jump in and talk a little bit about how Miami kind of stemmed this tide early on? Yeah. As long as we don't have to watch all 11 Obi top and three pointers. I'm in. (laughs) He made four of them. It wasn't a disaster for Obi, but he did. What we're going to do here is we're going to start in the first quarter with three plays that I think kind of showcase what was going on for Miami in this first quarter. Uh, Here, you're going to see the Knicks will always start RJ Barrett on the right side of the court. It is what they do. They want to try him, try and get him on the right side of the court, taking a handoff, taking a ball screen to try and get downhill toward the left. This is what they do. Uh, Here we go. So they're going to come down. Jalen Brunson's going to set a nice little screen for RJ. RJ is going to come up. He's going to take this dribble handoff for Mitchell Robinson. And it's a bit too soft of a drop, I think, here from Bam Adebayo. He lets Jimmy Butler, or lets, uh, I'm sorry, RJ Barrett, get into that paint. And one thing that you'll notice here, I want you to take a look at where Max Struess is. Max Struess is a bit high right now. He is guarding Josh Hart like pretty realistically. And to me here, he digs. He does not actually come in and try and stop RJ Barrett and cut off an angle for RJ. He just kind of digs and shows and then recovers, right? There is no, it's just a very small stunt from Max Struess there, as opposed to actually just sitting in the paint and trying to stop him. The fact that it's a stunt is important for when we move forward with what the Heat did later in this game. They let RJ Barrett get both feet in the paint. RJ goes up finishes uh, a lob to Mitchell Robinson there. So next, R.J. Barrett, again, right side of the court, takes a ball screen from Mitchell Robinson, uh, 
Kevin Love is on Mitchell Robinson here. This is just not going to be an advantageous situation for the Miami Heat when Kevin Love is playing center defensively. RJ is being guarded by Gabe Vincent. That is a guy that RJ can kind of muscle up against a little bit and get all the way to the lane. Really good stride length from RJ Barrett there. Gets all the way to the basket. Finishes. Again, RJ on the right side of the court offensively. You're going to see here, Obi Toppin's going to dance with it a little bit against Max Struess. He's going to take the dribble handoff to RJ. They do a pretty good job of denying the ability for him to get downhill toward his left. Max does a pretty good job there. And then he's actually just going to drive right. He's going to spin back. And what you're going to see here is a bit of an adjustment already from Miami late in this first quarter. You've got four bodies in the paint here. You're going to notice here Isaiah Hartenstein is setting a screen so that Bam can't go out and recover out on to Obi Toppin on the corner. Long closeout, open three. Again, though, brought on by dribble penetration where R.J. Barrett was able to get that deep into the paint. Eric Spolstra, uh, I believe it was probably around the three-minute mark of the first quarter, told the Heat this. They had a huddle. They had the mic in the huddle. Spolstra said, I don't think we remember what time of what type of team this is. It is an aggressive, attacking, paint team. Why are we letting them attack every time? The ball is the priority. So here we're going to go right in to the fir- to the first possession of the second quarter. As you can see, the yep. New York Knicks scored 22 paint points in the first quarter of yep. this game. That is an enormous amount of paint points. So here, what do the Heat have? They're in a zone. They're just straight up in a zone in the first possession of the second quarter. You can see it by the way that they're guarding. There we go. They're going to reverse it into Obi Toppin in the corner. Uh, and one. Toppin is going to get the wedgie, right? An absolute wedgie there. Second possession here of the second quarter. Uh, I think this is like a box in one matchup zone kind of look. Uh, you'll see here. So they, you'll see the box here, particularly with Bam, Duncan Robinson. I believe that's Haywood Highsmith. And then Caleb Martin in here, you can see the box. You can see where Duncan is and you're going to see Kyle Lowry be the one on RJ Barrett. He is guarding Barrett uh, basically across the court while the heat basically box up in a zone. There's some funky rotations here a little bit late in this possession that like kind of throw it off for me to where I can't totally tell if that's what they're doing, but I'm pretty sure it's a box and one here just to, again to give Miami or to give the Knicks a different look to give RJ Barrett a different look, particularly given that he was the one that had success dribble penetrating throughout the course of the first quarter already Eric Spolster making adjustments spins. Where are you at on this? What a smart coach. I mean, look, <laughs> it's it's never too early in a series to just say, screw it. This isn't working. We got to do something different. And I, I think a lot of coaches, particularly younger coaches or guys who spend so much time game planning, are so attached to the theory or the idea they had in their head. And look, Eric Spolstra has routinely used the zone over the last two or three years 
to try to disrupt the flow of offense. He goes to it a ton in ATO situations, which is where we saw it first play coming out of the quarter. Don't let the Knicks comfortably get into whatever it is that Tibbs, who is a maestro at just wanting to call up one of his 8,000 plays in the playbook. Like This is a great chess move from Spolster to be able to change that. But you saw 22 point paints in the first quarter, 21 points overall for the Miami Heat. They needed to do something different. And I jokingly call the New York Knicks team stride stop. Because like they always just muscle their way patiently into the <laughs> lane and then kind of pivot you to death. They want to, to just bully you over and get there. And then guys like Hartenstein and, and Mitchell Robinson are standing in the dunker spot, making sure that you can't overhelp off of them so they can get offensive rebounds or dunk attempts. Like they want to bully you and outmuscle you. And Miami's yep. approach right out of the gate just simply wasn't working of keeping them away from those spots. So they bought themselves some time here with the zone. It was a good initial adjustment and it got them back into the game a little bit. Yep. That's definitely right. So here we're a little bit deeper into the second quarter. Trying to remember why I pulled this one. I believe this is going to be okay. Look, RJ Barrett driving into the paint, four bodies touching the paint right now from the Miami heat. Their entire goal here moving forward, they're going to make Quentin Grimes, Obi Toppin, Emmanuel Quickly even, you know, Josh Hart certainly, beat them from beyond the arc. That is the entirety of what's going to happen in this series. Uh, It looks like moving forward. I would bet you that this goes from game one all the way to game seven at this point, if it goes that deep. Uh, This is They are going to force the Knicks to beat them anywhere but in the paint. So here you're going to see Gabe Vincent body up literally five guys in the paint against Jalen Brunson right now, five guys in the paint. He's going to kick it out to RJ. They're going to make RJ miss. They're going to make RJ beat them from beyond the arc. That is it. That is the goal. Here we go. Now I believe we are into the third quarter, which is where the fun really begins. So here again, Four guys in the paint, making life hard for Jalen Brunson, making Josh Hart beat them from three. Caleb or uh, Kevin Love, home run, uh, touchdown. I'm sorry, not a home run. That is a touchdown outlet pass up to Max Struess. The outlet pass king. Yeah. This is actually just one that I wanted to pull because it's absolutely beautiful for Miami on offense. Uh, you're going to see here, this is just going to be a – Beautiful kind of empty side screening action for, I believe that is Gabe Vincent from Bam. Bam is going to roll into the open side of the court. Yeah. Uh, but what has happened here is so. the Knicks overloaded the side of the court where the action was happening. So you get this Kevin Love screen action. You're going to have Struess come through the play again. And then you're going to see Kevin Love go. He's going to set this screen which you would expect to be just like a typical pin down, but instead it is essentially a dummy screen that leads to a flex cut. And because of that, there's a bit of a miscommunication between Obi Toppin and Josh Hart. One of them thinks it's a switch. One of them thinks uh, they're just guarding it straight up. Kevin Love wide open for three. This is beautiful. Kevin Love enormous in this third quarter here for reasons that we will continue to get into. Uh, Another thing that you will notice here, look who's guarding Jalen Brunson. It's Jimmy Butler. That was an enormous adjustment from Eric Spolstra. 
in the third quarter. They moved Jimmy on to Jalen Brunson. So here, just look at the crowd. Look at the sea of bodies. Look at the sea of red that Jalen Brunson is seeing when he goes to pull up. That is Jimmy behind him, and that is three bodies directly in his driving line. There is no chance that he is going to be able to get effective penetration there. So he pulls up. Here we go. Kevin Love, another touchdown outlet pass to Jimmy Butler. Uh, Just absolutely beautiful stuff here. Again, they're going to try and get the ball. RJ Barrett, right side of the court, getting downhill to the left. Look how many bodies. You've got two directly in front of them. That is an exceptionally difficult shot. Again, Kevin Love. Again, (gasps) outlet, touchdown pass, Jimmy Butler. Uh, This was just beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful here. Uh, Late in the third quarter, you're going to get Caleb Martin on Jalen Brunson here. Uh, You have Cody Zeller in instead of Bam Adebayo even, and it doesn't matter. The principles are still the same. The goals are still the same. I hit the rewind button a little bit too far that time, but the goals are still the same. Uh, You're going to see Jalen Brunson. He is going to drive. He is going to get swallowed up by a sea of five bodies in the paint. He's going to kick it to Josh Hart, and they're going to make Josh Hart beat them from three. We'll see if that happens throughout the course of the series. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but the Heat are going to make him prove it. Again, here we go. Another attack. You've got an iced ball screen here from Eric Spolstra. So you have a defender directly in front of Jalen Brunson, and you have Bam right there in help on the weak side. This is just a very, very difficult play. It's a very, very difficult play for Jalen Brunson there. Finally, this is going to be the last one. This is, uh, I believe, Emmanuel quickly struggling at the top. And then again, we're going to see a drive, this time with RJ, finally on the left side of the court. Uh, that is not where he is going to be comfortable. They are just going to way over help to the left every time that RJ is driving left from the left side of the court because he doesn't feel wildly comfortable driving with his right. And here it's just way too easy to watch what he is going to do in terms of counter. Uh, again, multiple bodies in front of him, multiple bodies in the paint. That is a miss. RJ's pissed. He thinks he got fouled. He didn't. That's what happened in the second half. The Miami Heat adjusted in such a real substantial way to what the Knicks were doing and frankly just got back to their own principles in terms of what they want to do in this series, in my opinion. I think what their goal is in this series is just to crowd the paint and make the Knicks a perimeter team, not a paint team. Yep. Sam, if if you wouldn't mind, could you go back to the clips at the start of the second half? On the, yes, on the defensive end of the floor. And look, this reminded me a lot of watching a couple of years ago, maybe three, maybe four now, the Raptors and Milwaukee Bucks played in Toronto when doing a real aggressive, what I call a blocks and elbows type of defensive scheme. So we'll see remnants of that here in the defensive half on the, on the help side positions from the Miami Heat. But two things I wanted to bring up in these first two clips. One, I, again, I call them team stride stop. Like it's not meant to be an insult. I love the footwork and how under control the Knicks are when they bully their way to the paint. But when you spin or half spin and you pivot your way down, anytime you turn the back of your head to a help defender, that gives them an avenue to knife in and help. Because when you turn back in their direction, you don't expect them to be on top of you. So as you play this clip, here's Brunson kind of half spinning back to his right 
We know he's a lefty. He's going to want to turn back to his left eventually as that happens. And he does end up spinning. Butler is there and prevents him from being able to do this. It was a personnel understanding from the Miami Heat that I expect them to do a lot of moving forward in knowing that the Knicks are going to be very patient to pivot, to fake, and they can come in on those plays. This one right here, if you wouldn't mind starting play number two from the top, this is called a Hawk action. And the, the New York Knicks ran it a ton against the Cleveland Cavaliers as a way of trying to find post mismatches and isolations right here, the Miami heat switch it. And then you can see they don't give a damn about the stagger on the weak side. They don't chase Josh Hart really with any type of urgency to the top of the key instead staying very lane protected. So if the Knicks are going to try to beat this, and again, we get to those pivots and half spins and Miami can sneak in here in these areas. The ball is going to be in Jalen Brunson's hands in the middle of the floor. They are not going to care about somebody who's designed to come off of those screens being able to shoot it, particularly if those shots come from the corner. And this is where the, the great adjustment was made from Kevin Love to just look ahead and go. If a shot comes from the corner, then the Miami Heat can rebound it and they have a transition avenue to bust out and run because it is so hard to bust out sprint when you have guys in the corner and a big man on the baseline who's trying to pin in and seal for him. I thought that the the understanding of where the Knicks players are placed offensively, having particularly three along the baseline a lot of times, gives Miami opportunities and avenues to run as we move forward. Yeah, I think that's all really smart. I think another thing that's kind of worth pointing out here is just the way that Kevin Love, it felt like, and Bam Adebayo consistently got a body on Mitchell Robinson. Yeah. Uh, this is something that the Cavs really, really struggled with throughout the course of their series. Look at how Bam here is just boxing uh, Mitchell Robinson at a really high level. He is just making sure to get a body on him from the moment that shot goes up. Body on him, making it way tougher. I think Mitch even still got the ball because Mitch is going to high point the ball better than Bam Adebayo and Kevin Love. But if you get a body on him, it's going to be really, really hard. Uh, I think that that is a big part of this series. How long can the New York Knicks go without getting those extra shots offensively? The extra shots were huge for them against the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know if they're going to get as many here against the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat tend to be uh, a team that is very disciplined uh, on the defensive glass. They don't have a ton of size which is why sometimes they can struggle. But for the most part this season, they were very, very good on the defensive glass. They were a top five team in defensive rebounding rate this entire season. So the Knicks should not expect as many second shots in this series is what they got. Well, and look, the Knicks were outside of OB top in three of 23 from deep. Like if the Heat are begging you to take those shots and you don't make them, of course you're going to lose. But if two, three, four of those shots go in and they're at about 35, 36% as a team, this is a different ballgame. So it's going to yeah. be a make or miss type of series for the New York Knicks. And until they start making them, I don't think the Miami Heat have to necessarily adjust, but you know, if if the Knicks are just so comfortable at creating all of these great, easy opportunities in the lane through muscle ball, I don't think Miami is going to have to change that and just live with the, the Knicks starting to get hot. Right. So now the questions moving forward in the series are, what does Miami do if Jimmy Butler 
can't really play or if he is hindered in some way in terms of creating offense. What does this look like when Julius Randle is back? Can they go and bludgeon a little bit more on the offensive glass than what they were able to with just Mitchell Robinson and Obi Toppin there today? Uh, There are a number of questions here moving forward within this series. If it stays like this, the Heat will win. Like There is very little doubt in my mind that the Heat will win if it stays like this because they will force the Knicks to beat them from the outside. And this is the one thing that I worry about with the Knicks unless Emmanuel Quickly and Quentin Grimes can really play. They struggled in this game and they struggled, not necessarily Grimes because of the shoulder injury, but Quickly struggled in the Cavs series as well. This is a big Emmanuel Quickly and Quentin Grimes series because I think they're going to need the shooting out there, which means they're going to need Quentin Grimes' shoulder to be healthy and they're going to need Emmanuel Quickly to be better than what he, what he was in Cleveland. No question. And look, I love Tom Thibodeau. I think he's an unbelievable and amazing coach. I have been wondering and waiting all season long for a few more Isaiah Hartenstein high post touches, not just because it opens up the rim in a lot of ways, but he's really good at diming from those locations and finding open guys. If the, the Heat are going to pack the paint that might be a viable strategy that they can go to a little bit further down the line. I just don't know if we'll end up seeing it. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll end up seeing it either. Uh, Do you have anything else you want to say on this series? I don't think so. Fun first game. I want to see the counterpunch from Thibodeau and how he can find ways to open up the lane a little bit more or punish the Miami Heat for clogging so much other than just making shots. Yeah, I think this is a series where eventually – if Julius Randle can't really play, they're probably going to have to go small. Uh, we'll see what Julius Randle's health looks like moving forward. But I think the Knicks' better bet is probably going a bit smaller in making Kevin Love bludgeon them on the glass. Uh, he did a pretty good job of that today. We will see if he can do that into the future. Uh, I think that that might be the adjustment back if you're the New York Knicks. Try and go smaller. Try and go, you know, Brunson quickly, Grimes, Barrett, or something like that. Get four perimeter creators out there at all times around Mitchell Robinson, around Julius Randle. Uh, I think that that might be the move for them. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, uh, let's go now to the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Spins is rocking his Phoenix Suns hat. Is there a reason for that, Adam? Is there a re- I found it while I was cleaning out my closet this weekend. <laughs> so that's the reason for it. I thought you were about to come with the hot take that the Suns are winning in five. That was that's what no. I was hoping for. I, no, I needed, this, yeah, this is some a, fire. This is a I stole it from my college roommate ten years ago and found it in my closet type of thing. So why the hell not wear it tonight? That rules. Uh, yeah. The Nuggets beat the Suns 125 to 107. Adam, uh, I kind of gave my take on this series at the beginning of this show. W- what is kind of your take on this series after game one? Yeah, so I, I think the the Phoenix Suns are, um, let me put it this way. The Denver Nuggets shot the crap out of the basketball in game one. And every open three-pointer that they got, they drilled. So if you're Phoenix, I don't think you can just rest on saying, well, they'll come back down to earth and they won't always shoot that way throughout the series because there are some real defensive flaws with kind of how the 
the Phoenix Suns are constructed right now. They need to find a better opportunity to – they need a better role player than Landry Shamit on the defensive end of the floor right now because I thought he got picked apart in that first game and the Phoenix Suns just didn't have the – We'll talk about the math equation a little bit more, but I didn't think that they had an answer for Jamal Murray and a lot of the the creation that he can have at the top of the key. He got far too many easy looks, and then when he got into the lane, he created easy looks for others. So, yeah, I do want to talk a little bit about Landry Shamit. I think one big adjustment for Phoenix is don't play Landry Shamit, just frankly. That is, uh, we will talk about it when we go in depth on the tape. That is something that will very much help the Phoenix Suns in this series, in my opinion. Don't play Shamit. Um, number two, the math equation is interesting, and I do think it is worth talking about briefly. The Phoenix Suns shot a crazy amount of mid-range shots in this game, yeah. particularly in the first half. They only took five three-point attempts. I get it when people say the math equation is a problem for Phoenix. I do think on some level it is, and it makes their life a little bit harder than it has to be. I don't think it was the problem in game one. Uh, I do think it is a grander, like bigger scale problem for them as they continue to go through this playoff series. They need to do more than what they did in game one. One, in terms of spacing and being willing to shoot and being willing to fire from three. I just also will note that, like, they shot 51% from the field in this game. Like, they they got to the line more than the Nuggets. The problem was not, like, the math problem in terms of mid-range. It was the problem in terms of attempts, and like number of cracks that the Nuggets got at it because the Nuggets ended up with 16 offensive rebounds in this game, majority of them coming in the first half. Nikola Jokic ended up with eight offensive rebounds in total in this game. And I think that was the bigger math problem for Phoenix. They took 17 fewer shots than Denver. And anytime that happens, you're just going to have problems. Uh, you know, the Suns turned the ball over 16 times to Denver's nine in this game. Yeah. To me, the problem was that the Phoenix Suns did not play well. The problem longer term could be that there is a math issue that will come up against them. But in game one specifically, it's that they did not play well. Thoughts, Adam? I think that sounds right. Um, And we can be a lot more targeted with the they aspect of this in talking about the Phoenix Suns. So I didn't really feel Chris Paul's presence out there in the way that I typically feel him during a a postseason series as a manipulator, as a competitor, as a guy who just controls the pace for his team. And that's something that we've definitely noticed since Kevin Durant arrived in town, more touches for KD and Booker, a few less for a guy like Chris Paul, nothing wrong with that. I think that's the natural order of the universe playing out in Phoenix, but it just very much didn't feel like he had a majorly positive presence in this game. The other thing we need more from Deandre Ayton. We absolutely need more. He did get beat on the glass. He did not play well on the other. And I thought Denver really switched a lot of different actions and dared Ayton to try to beat them inside. And that's an area that he's just not always comfortable doing is physically overpowering guys 
He floated a little bit throughout the course of that game. Like the adjustment for Phoenix isn't necessarily doing a ton different tactically. Like they need to stay more attached to Jamal Murray. They've got to do a couple better things at the point of attack, but it's just getting more out of two of your four best players. I think that that's right. I will say this also on like the math equation of it all. To me, it just felt like the three-point shot is not the thing for Phoenix. It's getting rim touches. If you notice where Minnesota had an immense amount of success, it is just getting to the basket against Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic has not been very good as a rim protector over the course of the last six months. Like You can beat him to the rim. He will try and stand there and take a charge, or you can finish over the top of him because... You have Kevin Durant, you have Chris Paul, you have Devin Booker, like specifically Durant and Booker, I think could do a better job of trying in ball screens to attack that mismatch. You can go like empty side ball screens with Kevin Durant and Nikola Jokic, and then you can play five spacers on the court at once, basically, so that Aaron Gordon can't help off. And you can try and outscore them that way and try and get to the basket, try and get easier shots that way. To me, that's more the adjustment I'm looking forward to to seeing from Phoenix. I would like to see them try and get Nikola Jokic in space a little bit more often, try and get him kind of on an island with some of their better players, and then trying to get all the way to the basket. Threes are important. I'm not, you know, downplaying the importance of the three-point shot for Phoenix. Phoenix has three guys that are 40% three-point shooters that are in their starting lineup, and Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Chris Paul – Plus, they have guys like Damian Lee, I guess Shamet, um, et cetera, et cetera, who can come in and shoot. But I, I just, to me, it's more the actions that they're running as opposed to like the shot mix that they're running that will be the adjustment here. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. Um, it's just not a rim pressure roster, Sam. It's not a team that's yeah. built to easily get opportunities at the rim. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it is us banging our head against the wall, hoping that the Suns kind of become something that they're not. They probably need to find a way to win this series without resorting to that. And maybe that includes shooting a few more three-pointers off of ball screens, setting, like we saw with the Golden State series, setting some higher ones so that they can pull off of ball screens. Then that forces Jokic or whoever is guarding them a little bit further out of the lane. Because I have no doubt Booker, Paul, and KD can hit those pull-up threes on high volume. If you do that, does that get other people away from the basket? And now you have greater avenues for for that rear. So it's not just an either-or. It's it's more of a both-and. And I would like to see it start more with where they're taking their attempts out of ball screens. Uh, the math issue isn't the major one for me. It's more so about if you shoot them from three, you force Denver to come out of the lane more, and then you get the highest yeah. percentage looks that you can at the basket. Yeah, I think that's a good call. But again, to me, this was not the biggest issue. The biggest issue was defense for Phoenix in this game. Yeah. Phoenix gave up 1.42 points per 100 or 1.42 points per possession in the first half of this game. Uh, You're just not going to have success if you do that, in my opinion. Uh, Hot take, I know. Let's go into the (laughs) clips, though, here. Uh, This is from two minutes into the game, a minute and a half into the game. And what you're going to see here is 
Josh Kogi is going to get clipped from a Jokic screen here early. And then DeAndre Ayton just doesn't step up and doesn't recognize that Josh Kogi is on the ground, basically. Ayton has to be like at the level of the three-point line here. There's just no – you have to recognize that your man is down. There's no like excuse yeah. for it. And let's start first thing first. got to call out the damn screen. Like It's the playoffs. Yeah. It's one of the first plays of the game. He's setting a screen near half court. Like Your job is to be able to call this out. That, that's an inexcusable miss in the first minute and a half of the game. Yeah, so this is just a wide-open – step in three from Jamal Murray that probably got him going a little bit. Cause man yeah. was Jamal great in this game. Uh, so here again, they guarded him with Josh Kogi, especially early in this game. You're going to see Deandre Ayton trying to corral Jamal Murray here. Does a pretty reasonable job forces the tough shot. Okay. Sometimes Jamal Murray is going to make that, but what I wanted to grab here, I think, is that one worrying thing for DeAndre was just that he got flat-footed often in this game. Look at how his foot is right now. He is flat-footed right now when Jamal Murray has the ball. You cannot be flat-footed in a switch against Jamal Murray. Jamal Murray is literally looking for your feet to go down and for your like center of gravity to drop so that you can't actually get out and contest his three. He recognizes it immediately. He makes it. Look, he did a good job corralling him there on the side, but then he didn't finish the possession, right? Like that is a very tough spot for DeAndre Ayton. He has to play more impactfully. Now, what I will say here, I think there were possessions where DeAndre did like a pretty good job. So here he does like a good job corralling, forces him baseline, forces the turnover, right? Like DeAndre had a few pretty good possessions. So here he's going to close out well onto Jokic. This is something that I think Denver should go to less of in the like games that are coming up. I don't think you want to post Jokic a lot against DeAndre. Ayton. DeAndre is long. He will make it harder for Jokic. I don't think that you can be as good as Nikola Jokic is. I think they have better avenues of offense than posting, uh, Nikola Jokic against DeAndre. DeAndre does a good job getting the contest there. Here, they run like a 5-4 ball screen, and you're going to see DeAndre does like a pretty good job getting through the action, does a good job contesting, misses the shot, battles, battles on the glass. That's what he's going to have to do throughout this series. Has to fight, has to scratch, has to claw, has to battle. He fought through that screen. He fought on the glass. That is what has to happen with DeAndre Ayton in this series. I didn't want to just bag on DeAndre Ayton. I thought that would be unfair. I thought he had some good possessions defensively in this game. Now, look at this one. Here, he just gets way too onto his right foot, and this is just easy. And again, what you're going to see here is like this probably needs to be more on the help side from Kevin Durant, but I think Durant did a pretty good job as well. I thought Durant did a good job in help defense here. Durant is long. He was ready to be there at the basket. He contests that shot. Like, I thought that was okay. I thought DeAndre probably just went a little bit too far to the right there. It's little details for DeAndre Ayton. It always has been. It always will be. The fact that he got just a little bit too far onto the right side of his foot, if you do that against Nikola Jokic, you will get bitten. You will absolutely get beat. So here, this one is... Oh, so Devin Booker misses this like weird shot. 
and look at where Nikola Jokic and DeAndre Ayton are. Yep. Nikola Jokic is in a sprinting formation. He is ready to go. DeAndre is standing straight up. They're at the same level. And then DeAndre is going. This could be altitude, frankly. Like, I don't want to, like, say this is effort at all. Like, this could be, you know, they're in Denver. Mm -hmm. DeAndre Ayton has played the first eight and a half minutes of this game. Like, we need to acknowledge that altitude is a real thing. But Nikola Jokic just can't beat DeAndre Ayton down the court that badly to where there's just no resistance whatsoever. Anytime that happens, it's going to be curtains. Here we go again. This one is actually just like, I want to showcase again. I thought Kevin Durant did a really good job in help defense in this game, Uh, which again, like is somewhat concerning given the fact they gave up 1.4 points per hundred possessions uh, in the second or the first quarter or first half. Uh, Again, here we go. Rotates all the way down from the wing, recognizes the cut, swats Christian Brown, ends up being a turnover on Christian Brown because he steps out of bounds. That's bad spacing and a bad drive on Murray's part as well. But I think the point on on Kevin Durant is a really salient one. Like he is such a good help defender, and this has always yes. been the most underrated aspect of his game. He was so yes. good for the Brooklyn Nets and their resurgence before the trade this year. He averaged over a block a game playing with the Golden State Warriors for all those years. He's a really damn good defender, and when you can have him guarding the corners so that he helps in a little bit more near the basket. It's a great opportunity for him to be at his best. And I think when Jokic is playing in the high post this series, that's an important thing for the Suns to be able to do. Keep Kevin Durant in a position where he's standing near the blocks and can provide that emergency help at the the rim. No, I think that's dead on. Okay, so here Aaron Gordon has the ball. They get this. This is just where the Landry Shamit show starts now that I'm recognizing it. So they go small here. Uh, Why in the world you would have Landry Shamit guarding Michael Porter Jr. um, is beyond me. Frankly, I don't don't understand the strategy here. I don't even think this was a switch. I think this was like he just picked up Michael Porter Jr. here. And this is just way too easy for Michael Porter Jr. He's going to shoot over the top of Landry Shamit literally every time. Uh, here we go. Landry Shamit trying to box out Aaron Gordon. The Nuggets are big. Like, this is a big team. Big. Jamal Murray is 6'5". KCP is 6'5". Michael Porter, 6'9". Aaron Gordon, 6'8". Like, these dudes are big. Aaron Gordon just yep. jumps right over the top of Landry Shamit. It's not even like a terrible box out, but it's not even going like he didn't go over the top on him. Like he didn't foul him at all. He's just bigger and longer than Landry Shamit is. And the ball went to him. Uh, I, I don't think you can play Landry Shamit in this series, just straight up. So here uh, I believe that this is just me getting frustrated. that DeAndre leaves his line uh, in the drop a little bit too early. So he's going to stand. He's going to be here. He's the man guarding Jeff Green, so this is his drop responsibility here. Uh, he needs to stay attached here, and I think that he's just anticipating that Jeff Green is going to be cutting, like, or is going to be rolling back door here. And I think he just doesn't have track of where Jeff Green is. Like, he drops like backward there instead of trying to drop, like, you know back on to Jeff Green, who's basically standing at the foul line. Like, I don't understand why DeAndre Ayton is dropping backward here and giving up the wide open driving lane. 
Yeah, and that's a weird play because Porter is kind of in the way, like pseudo posting up, trying to figure out where he should go. Yep. And I think Aiton is just kind of assuming that there's going to be no pathway forward for uh, for Murray yeah. to get to the basket. So it, it's it's a really wonky kind of like you never know what happens on on the fly, and you have to really plan for. Um, but it's just it, it, when you are in a playoff series you've got to key in on the top scorers and the top scorer right now is not only the guy with the basketball because the ball is what scores, not a man, but it's Murray. He's been cooking. You've got to be able to, to play in the lane a little bit more. Yeah. And this is Bruce Brown, but yeah, no, you're hundred yeah, percent yeah, right. Yeah. Like you need to, you, to me, Deandre has to be protecting the paint. There has to be in front of that driving lane in drop. Like I get that. He thinks that because Michael Porter is posting there that he has the help, okay, let's say that Michael Porter just vacates that area. Would you rather give up a Jeff Green three or a Michael Porter three, right? right? Like that is DeAndre. DeAndre has to be in that driving lane there. Okay, so here, this is going to be, I believe, what am I looking at here? Let's see. Okay, so Jokic is going to come up. He's going to set this screen uh, for Bruce Brown. What you're going to see here is, again, I just missed it. DeAndre is flat-footed again. And Bruce Brown recognizes it immediately. DeAndre is flat-footed in ball screen coverage again. And as soon as he sees it, Bruce Brown goes up, knocks it down. Because again, DeAndre is not going to be able to actually contest that shot at a high level. I guess you're comfortable with a Bruce Brown mid-range shot. I don't know. Like In rhythm, I wouldn't really want that. And frankly, I didn't love the fact that DeAndre was flat-footed throughout the entirety of this game, it felt like. He was on his heels. He was not aggressive. Like, I know that people asked him about his aggression after the game. It felt like he was on his heels the whole game. Like, that is what happened here. So, just to be clear, like, this is not always... uh, What what did I grab here? I actually don't even know why I pulled this. It's fun. Like, I pull these clips and, like, half the time I forget why I pulled them. (laughs) Um this is the previous one, DeAndre flat-footed again. This is Bismack Biombo in this next clip. Um, oh, this is De- Devin Booker's just ball watching here, like yep. the whole way. There, there's no reason for him to be at the elbow or to be inside of the elbow here uh, against this Jamal Murray drive when Bismack is yeah. right there. Uh, he's still ball watching. He is still ball watching and loses track of KCP. This is just a wide open KCP three. You can't leave yep. Contavious Caldwell Pope wide open. That yeah, so is a great. Yeah. Great yep. relocation by KCP. Great relocation there. But I, I think the, this play here, and you can see that the Suns are in drop coverage based on where Bismack Biombo is standing. And yep. this is, yeah, I'm not in the Suns huddle. I don't know what they're trying to draw up here or talk about defensively. But when you play in drop coverage and you go over the top of screens, you typically want to play that two-on-two in the middle of the floor with the two guys that are guarding the pick-and-roll action. So if you're Devin Booker, your responsibility is to bluff and recover or stay a little bit closer to home with your man, particularly if he is a shooter. Because in drop coverage, yep. you want to protect the basket, contest from behind, make them throw a pocket pass, and then be able to recover. The fact that Booker is a little bit too deep at the beginning of this right here is a little bit concerning. And I think Caldwell Pope makes a great just read realizes that Booker is too deep and relocates to a spot where he can't recover in time to get a hand up on the shot. 
Yep. I think that's dead on spins. Uh, here we go again. This is just Landry Shamit. Yeah. I believe guarding it's Jamal Murray throughout the entirety of this possession. This uh, was the one. Yeah. yeah. Why they have Landry Shamit guarding Jamal Murray eludes me. Uh, he's just not quick enough and not good enough on ball. Like I, I sometimes the answer is that he's just not good enough on defense. This is one of those times, like one adjustment for the Suns is to not play Landry Shamit. Uh, I get that, you know, you might not feel great about the rest of your bench, but I like, I feel bad on some level, but yeah, like you can't, really play Shamit here again yeah. like just gets absolutely cooked by jamal murray uh sometimes guys can't defend and that's fine but yep. you know just gets absolutely cooked can't play i, I think i think the way i'd put it is you can't play landry Shamit with chris paul you can only play landry Shamit if you can steal minutes for him guarding contavious caldwell pope and even that is a little bit of a risk. So I, you know, even I, that is it. Yeah, that's a huge risk because yeah. they're just going to get him switched. Like that's yep. they'll they'll just find him eventually. Yep. I just don't think that you can do it. Uh, this one again. Here we go. So this is like pretty okay. I think. Like I think the Andre mm-hmm. does what he's supposed to do here, which is why I pulled this. Like again. So here. Jokic sets the screen right at the three-point line. Pay attention to that. That is important for the next clip. Sets the screen right at the three-point line. And DeAndre, I think, does a pretty good job. He's in the gap here. You could hit a pocket pass, but DeAndre will be right there to be able to contest that. Okogi fights over the top. He gets there. He contests. This is a shot that Phoenix wants Denver to take at the end of the day and drop. This is what that is supposed to look like. Now... Look at where Jokic sets the screen. Sets it, what, three feet higher up the court this time? Something like that, right, Adam? Yep. And here, that's just too much space in the gap for DeAndre Ayton to cover. And he has to stay in front of Jamal Murray because Akogi is still recovering from a very good screen from Jokic. And he has to actually be here. He has to contest. Murray makes the easy dump off. Jokic is there. It's a good trailer short roll from Jokic. Undeniably, Jokic is a genius that just understands offensive spacing at a level that none of us do. But here, I mean, this is just why setting screens higher up the court. Remember how we talked about this with the Golden State Warriors earlier. Setting screens higher up the court is a real differentiator for teams playing in drop coverage. It makes it way too much ground to cover for that big to be able to cover. And this is just simple from Jokic, right? So here, this is just showcasing what the Suns plan was, as you'll see here. So like Kevin Durant is guarding Aaron Gordon from the start of this possession. They run some really interesting action. Kevin Durant has to be here in order to, I don't even know this is necessarily a tag. It's just he's playing good help defense. He has to be available here. If he's not, that's just the first option in this play, right, is to find Nikola Jokic cutting to the basket. Uh, Jokic kind of tries to set a screen on Kevin Durant, I think thinking that they might try and switch this uh, at the top. 
because I don't, I don't think this is a play like for Aaron Gordon to get an open three. I just think it's that like, that is what happened on this play. And I think that like, he is the last option on this play. Uh, Kevin Durant can easily close out onto Aaron Gordon if he wants to. It's just, this is the epitome of what they were trying to do. Right. They were just like, okay, we are more than comfortable with Aaron Gordon shooting threes. He will shoot them. Maybe he'll make them. Maybe he won't. We'll bet that he won't make as many of them as he takes. Aaron Gordon hit them for 23 points in game one. He had nine of 13 from the field, three of four from three. You can't take everything away. You just can't do it. You got to figure out what you're going to live with. I think it was a sound strategy to try to make Kevin Durant, who's you know got a seven-something wingspan, more of the helper at the rim. Like you said, smart play by Jokic to try and pin in Durant a little bit more so that he can't recover a little bit sooner. And you know that DeAndre Ayton isn't going to be the one who recognizes that scramble, goes out to the perimeter, because if he does that, now you throw the ball in down low to Jokic with Durant on him one-on-one. And that's probably yep. curtains. So uh, this is what you know Michael Malone has to do, which is try to dial up some different sets and schemes in ways to punish the Suns for having Durant play in such an aggressively help-driven scheme. Yep, that is dead on. Uh, and then finally, here, what am I looking at? I am yeah looking at why did I pull this, Adam? Tell me Corners, why I pulled the- well, let's walk through it one more time. Corner slip split that ends up coming here, hit Jokic at the elbow. And this is an area where he's always been so dangerous yep. as a playmaker with back doors. But you see, who, who is that that's guarding, I believe, Murray at the top? Oh, and yeah. it gets caught I, I pulled, fighting through this. Yeah. I pulled this just because it was an awesome offensive set as much as anything. I, I did not. I've been looking at Phoenix's defense this whole time. I just wanted to run this. You're right. This is a split. Like this is Jokic coming up here. He's going to catch this ball here. This is just like patented, like flex offense stuff, right? So uh, Jamal Murray's going to come down. He's going to set this screen, uh, baseline cut toward the basket. They miscommunicate on the back end. Here, they both go toward, I believe that's Aaron Gordon. And when you do that, it's just curtains for Jamal Murray. Great screen by Murray's part, too. Good angle to get there. Made solid contact. Left at the right time. All, all of the things that you want. Yeah, this is just an offensive, like, awesome offensive set. You're going to get beat on this sometimes. Like, this yep. is just a real, like, really, really exceptionally difficult set to guard. But, yeah. Yeah, flex, yeah, flex screens are, are prevalent in the NBA when you have a shooter who sets in that. Celtics ran all these flex flex sets a millions times with Isaiah Thomas. That was something that Brad Stevens wanted to run. Fred Van Vliet does it for the Raptors. Like it's a really smart way of getting a good guard who can shoot on the move by having him set that little brush screen closer to the corner and then pop right back out to the perimeter. So adjustments for the Suns. Don't play Landry Shamet. Uh be more active and energetic in drop coverage. I think for Deandre Ayton, I mean, what, where else are we uh, on what they have to do here? They have to hit the offensive glass or have to hit the defensive glass for sure. Like that's a big part of this is just being aggressive on the defensive glass. I think they got to find more ways to have Chris Paul and Deandre Ayton's presence felt on offense. And the, the answer for either of those cannot be in the mid range. Uh, This isn't, 
my anti mid range thing. I've come around a lot more to believing that when you have elite shot makers like the Suns do, you probably take them. But Booker and Durant are going to get theirs in that area. So if Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton are going to make an impact in this series offensively, it has to be in other areas. So whether that's more pull-up threes for a guy like Chris Paul or, or, or even Booker or Durant, or if it's finding ways to get DeAndre Ayton going at the basket, it's just something that the, the Suns absolutely have to do. Because if Ayton is going to be, I don't want to say a, you know, a neutral presence on the defensive end of the floor, some good, some bad, yeah. he's got a really tough assignment ahead of him. But in order to keep him engaged – They've got to find ways to create opportunities for him on the offensive end as well. I, I always believe that the guys who are tasked with the toughest defensive assignments need a little bit of love on the offensive end of the floor to keep them mentally tuned into what is going to be asked of them. And I'd love to see Monty Williams and the Suns do just a little bit more to try to create for Aiden. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that the way that you do that is you run him in high ball screens and you put – Devin Booker and Kevin Durant on the weak side of the action and you open up the court in a substantial way. I think it is going to be very, very difficult for Denver to guard one, five ball screen actions high up the court when Devin Booker and Kevin Durant are on the weak side. Yep. So we talked a lot after some of the Grizzlies Lakers series games where the Lakers went to that double drag empty set where they had yep. essentially nobody in a position to tag the roller. I would love to see the Suns go to something like that where one of their two great scoring options on the wing and Booker or Durant is setting one of those screens and DeAndre Ayton is setting the second and then rolling to the basket. I think that'd be a really efficient way to use the multitude of ball handlers and shooters that they have because if they don't like or aren't able to get Ayton at the rim, throw back to whoever the other screener is, Booker or Durant, and it probably ends up being a wing isolation that is still going to generate a pretty good look for the Suns. I think that's dead on. Uh, I think that is dead on. I think that's where we can close it for there. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else, Adam? Any, anything you got to get off your chest before we, uh, before we go? Let's I don't see. think Do we, I got it. Yeah. I mean, look, the Celtics, any... Celtics Sixers is starting and like, it doesn't feel exciting because we don't know what to make of the whole Joel and beat injury thing. I I'm usually super stoked for a matchup between those two teams, but just having trouble really getting into that series. Like parody is real in the game of basketball. So we have a, a second round filled with series that could go either way. That really yeah. excites me. No, I think that's dead on. I'm really, really excited to see that series. And I'm really excited to see the Warriors Lakers series that we just talked about a little bit earlier on. Uh, we had one question from someone here. Did you guys comment on the Cooper flag performance oh. a few days ago? I mean, look, Coop, Coop, Cooper flag is Whoa. The best player in high school basketball, like he's an absolute stud. Uh, that guy is a joke. And I, 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 where do you fall on the Cam Boozer Cooper flag uh, thing? Uh, they're both so damn good. Like I'd love to have both either of them on my team. Yeah, I, I, look, Cooper Flag is such a smart and impactful defensive player, but he has turned himself over the last twelve to fifteen months into a lethal offensive threat. 
And if he's going to continue to be efficient from the field while bringing the type of defensive impact that he has, like this, this kid's just a laughably good player in any type of team scheme or context. Um, yeah, I, I think he's unbelievable. I think yeah. he is the, uh, the best player I've seen in high school basketball uh, in the last couple cycles. The uh, he's pride of very, Maine. Very good. Yeah. Very, very good. I, I, yeah, he's an absolute stud. Uh, Gregory Castillo, movie reviews, question mark. I watched Ghosted with Ana de Armas and Chris Evans. Did you and Kayla watch that? No, that is not the story about the my college experience talking to, no, Ghosted. No, not, no, 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 not, no. Not the autobiography. Okay. Yeah, uh, no, not the autobiography. Uh, this uh this movie is with Anna Darmus and Chris Evans. It's supposed to be a rom-com. They have no chemistry because uh, the first 25 minutes, Anna Darmus, I think, kind of struggles with the responsibility and the assignment. Uh, she's really good once we get to the action sequences. I think she's just a lot more comfortable in those settings. Anybody that's seen No Time to Die uh, probably gets that. I think she's really, really good in those settings. Uh, Chris Evans is really good. Most importantly, though, Tim Blake Nelson goes for the closest equivalent to an accent that sounds similar to Teddy KGB from Rounders that I have ever seen. It is a dead ringer. I literally think that he watched John Malkovich playing Teddy KGB in Rounders in order to come up with this accent for a Russian torturer. Uh, It is off the rails uh it is completely fucking off the rails you cannot look at anything else that is on the screen other than tim blake nelson trying to talk in this ridiculous russian accent i loved it for five minutes that tim blake nelson was on screen (laughs) the rest of the movie was garbage (laughs) i was gonna say does it sound like a movie i should look into watching that sums it up for me a little bit Absolutely not. I would not watch that movie. Uh, what else have I seen recently? I saw Scream 6. Scream 6 is great. Uh, fun. If you like the Scream movies, it's exactly what you're expecting. It is enjoyable. I had a super great time. Uh, what else? What else have I watched? What else have I watched? Uh, I don't know. Did you that see really... Bo is Afraid? I've not seen Bo is Afraid yet. Okay. Have not seen Bo is Afraid yet. That is on the list for sometime whenever i get time away from yeah. basketball i don't I know hear. when that will come yeah. <laughs> i hear it's a head scratcher it's a it's a controversial whether people love it or or kind of dislike it or don't get it and i hear it's very long so uh that's yeah. anecdotal for me i haven't seen it but uh very divisive i am a big ari aster fan in general so i am very excited for this and i'm excited to see him I believe kind of outside of the horror genre a little bit. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm very pumped for this. I think it's going to be a good time. Uh, okay. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people you've got coming up on YouTube. Yeah. So uh, find me at the box and one underscore on Twitter or Adam Spinella, my name on YouTube. This is big man week. As we dive into the NBA draft scouting portion of things here, Adem Bona, Derek Lively, James Naji, Noah Clowney, all of those guys coming out this week as I try to wrestle with the value of big men, particularly those who don't shoot the basketball well in the modern NBA. So tapping into a lot of what we talked about tonight with playoffs and matchups and scheme and things like that, really trying to inform 
how we form the evaluation of some of these these bigger guys. And I uh, can't say I'm looking forward to it too much, but it's necessary work <laughs> for this draft cycle. The good news is I know that you're almost done with it now, yes. which is good. <laughs> uh, what do I have coming this week? I have a top 100 board coming this week. I'm filing that and writing it literally as soon as I get off the phone here with Adam. Uh, I will have a 2022 redraft later this week. Uh, do this at the end of every rookie season, the end of every cycle. It ends up being a really fun process that I enjoy. Uh, really, really interesting group of rookies because there's a lot of upside in them still and trying to determine what that upside will look like long-term is really fascinating. Like, where do you put Jabari Smith? Do you still buy into Jabari Smith after the terrible season? Uh, do you buy into him more or less than Jeremy Sohan, you know, after their seasons? Do you buy into him more or less than... Jaden Ivey, who similarly had like a weird season. I think there's a lot to dive into there. But the top 100 board is the key thing. That will be out on Tuesday. Uh, You will get a chance to peruse that. Then other news, you will have podcasts for me each of the next three nights after this one. The next two nights, one of those will be with Schindler. One of them will probably be on my own, if you made me guess, just breaking down tape uh, and talking about some of these games that occur. Uh, the final one on Wednesday going into Thursday will be a mock draft podcast with Adam Spinella breaking down oh, yeah. everything that we saw over the course of this draft cycle. I guess we're going to talk yeah. a little bit about draft because we haven't talked draft in a while. And there's only one game on both, I believe, Thursday and Friday night in the United States. So there's a Wednesday and Thursday. It might be Wednesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Thursday. There's yeah. only one game. Yeah. Um, the Australia United States days, they always <laughs> screw me up. You know, what can we do? Uh, anyway, Adam, thank you for coming on. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back uh, later this week, aka tomorrow, to talk more about basketball. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye. <laughs>